So, everything began with a relatively simple piece of chemistry. Nitrocellulose is formed by nitrating cellulose and nitric acid, creating a compound that can be used as a propellant or low explosive. When this is plasticized using camphor, we get celluloid, as originally used by Kodak as stills and motion picture stock. It could not come as much of a surprise that this low explosive ended up being a rather unstable film stock and sometimes combusted at temperatures exceeding 150 degrees. Anyone who has ever spent any time in a projection booth knows that this is film stock you wouldn't really want to be too close to. The Cinematograph Act of 1909 was put into place to combat an increasing amount of cinema fires caused by this unstable stock. As such, it was implemented as a health and safety issue in a time long before the term had ever been coined. I would suppose that many welcome this attempt to curb an increasingly dangerous job at previously unlicensed venues, and the Act of 1909 is a ruling built on very stable and logical grounds for improvement. Though it did beg the question, what exactly does health and safety cover? It seemed that some thought that this ruling may also be altered to cover another increasing and genuinely disturbing trend of the times. Films back in the early 1900s were mostly one reel long loops, played anywhere a screen could be hung. Across London, backrooms began showing anything they could get their hands on, and one such clip caused quite a stir. It was of Chinese bandits and a particularly brutal method of justice. Decapitation. This horrific piece of film caused a commotion that anyone who had lived through the 1980s would find very familiar. It became clear to local authorities that something was needed to stop this current trend. And when one unrelated picture house opened on a Sunday, which was an act frowned upon in a much more religious time, they found it. A brief courtroom battle was fought between the local authorities and the picture house. Predictably, the court finding in favour of the local council. The 1909 Act was ruled then to be all-encompassing, and that anything could actually cause the picture house's licence under it to be a breach of contract. This allowed local authorities to effectively shut down any theatre for almost any reason they chose. There were even reports of police torching picture houses and blaming the flammable stock in order to keep the industry in line. Now that they had the legal means, local authorities needed a body to review the films for submission, and many began doing this on a district-by-district basis. When this proved too unwieldy, a nationwide body was called for, and in order to prevent the government censoring the industry, the industry itself formed its own organisation the British Board of Film Censors. The year was 1912, and over a hundred years later, in the UK, we are still ruled by the same organisation. The British Board of Film Classification, as it was renamed in 1984, does have a relevant position in modern England, and the levels of actual censorship it provides is considerably lower now than perhaps it's ever been. This is reflected in the change of the organisation's name, but also in its standing in the film-going community. The BBFC are no longer the devils they were thought of in the mid-1980s, and have become more of an irritation than an actual enemy to many movie collectors. 
However, censorship is still a threat, and even the banning of films still happen to this day, though it's considerably less common. Of the 72 films originally on the dreaded lists applied to police during the 1980s, only 12 remain unreleased in this country, while 20 were released with cuts and a staggering 40 were re-released completely uncensored. This is obviously a far cry from the 100% lack of censorship that a truly free society would enjoy, but it cannot be denied that this is a huge step in the right direction, even if it has taken 30 years or so to get there. The question posed by the original Act of 1909 and the resulting court case briefly covered earlier is still as relevant today as it was then, and it probably always will be. So does the health and safety of the populace include what we watch, read and listen to? Is there cause to curtail the release of a piece of entertainment on the grounds that it's likely to corrupt and deprave? And is there truly causation and not merely correlation between watching violence and committing it? Well, these and many other questions will probably not be answered in the next dry and pseudo-academic episode of well, whatever it is I'm doing here. Okay, bored myself now, so it's tea and movie time. I'll speak to you later.